You're listening to the N2K Space Network. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. The 74th International Astronautical Congress ends tomorrow in Baku, Azerbaijan. And today, one of its guest speakers spoke virtually to great global interest. Yes, Elon Musk himself came to the IAC and shared some of his thoughts and predictions for what's next from SpaceX and specifically the still-grounded Starship. Today is October 5th, 2023. I'm Maria Varmazis, and this is T-Minus. Elon Musk announces ambitious Starship plans at the IAC. China and Russia outline future space station projects. Northrop Grumman partners with Voyager Space on Starlab. And our guest today is Steve Wolf, president of the Beyond Earth Institute, on the event happening in November. So stay with us for more details. And now let's take a look at today's Intel briefing. And we're starting our show today with Elon, 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 and his comments earlier today to the packed audience at the IAC. One eye-watering prediction from Musk came when asked about when he thought we might see Starship make any kind of landing on Mars. His response, and I quote, is, I think it's sort of feasible within the next four years to do an uncrewed test landing on Mars. Given that Starship hasn't even reached orbital Earth space yet, that is certainly an aggressive timeline. Decide for yourself if you find it credible. When speaking of very long-term goals, if you've been following Musk for some time, you're undoubtedly aware of his goal to make humans an interplanetary species. So his vision, he told the IAC, is to make Starship a generalized transport system to anywhere in the solar system. With minor modifications, and those are his words, Musk said, yeah, Starship should be able to land on the moon and Mars. And from Mars, you can go to the asteroid belt, moons of Jupiter and Saturn, 
ultimately all the way out to the Kuiper Belt and the Oort Cloud. Dream big, why not? To support interplanetary goals at SpaceX, Musk says he expects in the not-too-distant future that they'll be launching up to 10 times a day, thousands of times per year, likely using platform-based launches from ocean locations to support that goal. So let's come back to Earth for just a second, because we've been reviewing a lot of interesting predictions from Musk's talk so far. And just in case we need to say it, Starship needs to first successfully go orbital, and it also needs to successfully land before we get ahead of ourselves on next steps. So perhaps let's hear from the man himself on when we might expect to see Starship show off its full reusability and make a landing back at the Mechazilla Tower at Boca Chica. We have have a giant um, custom-designed tower with massive mechanical arms that will literally try to catch the booster and catch the ship. Um, which it sounds insane. I mean, I haven't even seen a sci-fi movie that does this, you know. Um, but in theory, it should work. It's, it, it work. Let's just say success is in the set of possible outcomes. Um, I'm, not so, I'm not sure what the probability is, but success is somewhere in that. Is, is success possible? Yes, I think it's possible. Um, in terms of catching it, I think um, uh, it'll be a few flights. So, so for the ship, it'll be when, when you see the ship landing at a precise position in the in the water. Uh, that's when we will uh, try to catch the ship with our Mechazilla on the tower. Uh, the booster, obviously, booster flights we've we've done many times on Falcon 9, so we're much more familiar and have a much higher confidence uh, with booster recovery. Um, so booster, I I I, but I I think I think there's a decent chance depending on when our licenses are granted, that we would catch the booster in the next uh, year, or maybe less than a year. And, and then hopefully, uh, if we get lucky, we might catch the ship towards the end of next year. Time will tell. And speaking of ambitious space plans announced at the IAC, China and Russia both took to the stage over the last few days to outline their respective plans for space stations. China says it plans to double the size of its existing Tiangong space station in the coming years and will offer astronauts from other nations an alternative platform as the International Space Station nears the end of its lifespan. China has increased the expected lifespan of its Celestial Palace by 10 years and says it is already in discussions with international partners to use the station in the near future. The director general of Roscosmos, Yuri Borisov, also discussed space station ambitions at the IAC. And Borisov says Russia plans to design, manufacture, and launch several modules by 2027 for the Russian orbital station. The Russians plan to position the station in polar orbit. Russia says it will develop new transportation vehicles for the station and for further deep space exploration, including a nuclear-powered deep space transport vehicle called the Nuklon. Borisov also outlined plans to develop the Sfera mega-constellation to satisfy the country's demand for communications. Russian media is reporting that the country's space budget is smaller than expected and certainly does not seem large enough to meet their ambitions. We mentioned this earlier this week that there were rumors that Northrop Grumman was dropping its space station ambitions— But it seems that rather than undertaking that big project alone, they're looking to combine their work with others. 
They've announced a new partnership with Voyager Space that will see Northrop Grumman's Cygnus spacecraft provide cargo resupply services for the Starlab space station. Now, Starlab is being built and operated under a transatlantic joint venture between Voyager Space and Airbus Defense and Space. Northrop plans to update the Cygnus spacecraft to be fully autonomous for rendezvous and docking with Starlab. They do say that space is the ultimate team sport, and it seems that commercial companies are opting to collaborate rather than trying to figure out the next generation of space stations alone. It's almost like this approach has been a proven success before, huh? NASA is starting a series of test fires of its newly upgraded RS-25 engines, which will be used to power the Space Launch Systems, or SLS, rocket to the moon. The RS-25 engine, used during the space shuttle era, continues to be a key focus as NASA looks to future Artemis missions. A series of 12 tests stretching into 2024 are scheduled to occur on the Fred Hayes test stand at NASA's Stennis Space Center in Mississippi. The tests are a key step for lead SLS engines contractor Aerojet Rocketdyne, an L3 Harris Technologies company, to produce engines that will help power the SLS rocket, beginning with the Artemis V. The U.S. Air Force awarded a five-year indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity, small business innovation research phase three contract to LMI. The contract comes with two initial task orders to expand support to the Space Security and Defense Program and the Space Warfighting Analysis Center. The total value of the contract is worth $98 million, and LMI says it will be used to further develop the company's rapid analysis and prototyping toolkit for resiliency, also known as Raptor. Japanese space startup Pale Blue has completed the first close to a Series B round, raising approximately $7.5 million. The company has also been selected for the demonstration of mass production, or DMP phase, of the Deep Tech Startup Support Fund slash Deep Tech Startup Support Project of the New Energy and Industrial Technology Development Organization. Pale Blue says they plan to use the new funding to accelerate research and development for mass production of propulsion systems while establishing a production base. The UK Space Agency has announced a partnership with the Japanese-led Lightbird mission. Lightbird stands for Light Satellite for the Study of B-Mode Polarization and Inflation from Cosmic Background Radiation Detection. The mission plans to analyze variations in light left over from the Big Bang to test whether the current theory of how our universe expanded immediately after it was formed is correct. The UK Space Agency has committed an initial £2.7 million to this mission to fund a group of UK scientists to design elements of Lightbird's highly specialized science instruments and analyze their findings, and production of the telescope's lenses and filters by Cardiff University, which is the only institution in the world with the expertise needed to make them. The UK Space Agency intends to invest a total of £17 million throughout the life of the mission, slated for launch before 2030. That concludes our briefing for today, but you'll find links to further reading on all of the stories we've mentioned in today's episode in our show notes. We've also included some extra stories, and one of them's on a call for the DOD to step up support for commercial space companies. Another one's an announcement from our friends at the Hyperspace Challenge coming up next month, 
And there's one on Israeli companies selling spy satellites to Azerbaijan. You can find all these stories and more at space.n2k.com. Hey, T-Minus crew. Every Thursday, we sit down with industry experts in a segment we call Industry Voices, all about the groundbreaking new products, services, and businesses emerging around the world. Every guest on Industry Voices has paid to be here. We hope you'll find it useful to hear directly from businesses about the challenges that they're solving and how they're doing it. Today, you'll hear from Steve Wolf about the Beyond Earth Institute conference. Visit space.n2k.com slash beyondearth to learn more. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Our guest today is Steve Wolf, president of the Beyond Earth Institute. Steve starts off by telling us about the organization's mission. The Beyond Earth Institute is a nonprofit think tank that is focused on policy and uh, regulatory issues that will help us to get closer and closer to a future where humans can live and work and and thrive in, in outer space. So we're very much oriented in our agenda to the human factors. What does it mean for humans to inhabit commercial space stations, for example, that are being planned for the next, over the next 10 years to be deployed? The commercial space stations will replace the ISS, for example. So we have, um, our organization is looking at a wide range of issues to support this eventual future where humans can one day even migrate, choose to migrate beyond the planet. One of the things that I find very impressive about Beyond Earth is that there's an emphasis on practical solutions for, for stakeholders who are working in this industry right now and who are trying to, to form this future and do it in a safe and inclusive way. And especially when we talk about things like space policy, the need is extraordinarily pressing. I, I just It feels like, maybe to me, because <laughs> I've been a little bit outside this world for a bit, but almost all of a sudden, Leo's getting really, really crowded. We're, we're really realistically talking about, you know, a cis-lunar future, not in the very long term, but in the near term. And now there are all these sort of policy questions that have come up about how do we govern all that? How do we do it in a fair way? And that's one of the many things that Beyond Earth Institute is really looking at. Could you tell me a little bit about uh, the event that just happened recently about policy pathways towards space migration? It, se- it seems really in line with all this. Yeah, so we just had a, a wonderful webinar where we were asking this really big question about what it's going to take for us to, from a policy standpoint, get to uh, a space migration future. No question can be bigger. And we had these uh, real policy insiders like uh, 
Pete Warden, who was a former director of the Ames Research Center, Jim Muncy, who was a longtime Washington space policy operative, Greg Autry, who was with the who was at the University of Arizona, Michelle Hanland, space law professor at Ole Miss, and others. And this conversation helped us to, we got into you know, big issues, but we also talked about issues like, like mission authorization. So we understand that the, the Outer Space Treaty requires that nation states oversee the, the space activities of their masters. The, the federal government, U.S. government and other nations throughout the world are trying to understand how are we going to manage this in a world where commercial activity is going to be increasingly more uh, prevalent as we're shifting. We're generally taking the position that we have to move, uh, we have to share the responsibility, particularly Department of Commerce has to take a larger role in this. And so we got into this issue somewhat. We also were talking about is there appropriate place for the U.S. to to set goal for um, the potential human creation of human communities beyond Earth. Uh, you know, there's no absolute answers to, to some of this, and Congress and the United States is grappling with this, even as we speak, or some responsibilities. Uh, we're just looking to continue to contribute to this conversation. It strikes me that while this conversation is is very U.S.-centric, understandably, the event happening in November, which we'll talk about in just a second, has a much more, almost like a, a much more global emphasis. The event in, in November is uh, the Beyond Earth Symposium, November 1st and 2nd. And uh, I'm, I'm so, I was so impressed by the number of guests from a number of international agencies taking the global perspective on, on all these policy questions and, how, and the governance issues. So this is the second time this, this event is happening because last year was the inaugural one. Is that correct? That's right. Last year was the inaugural one. It was very successful. Uh, you mentioned international, and so we're having. Um, we are actually going to lead off with a with a strong international program where we'll include representation from from Italy, from India, and Japan, because there's there's a shift going on where the United States is really going to be a player. And, and certainly will be continue to be the dominant player, but other nations are very eager to get into, uh, become more and more involved in the space domain. There's a recognition now that we're moving from space as being a, a place where we do, where we do science and exploration to a domain that is, uh, has great economic potential. And that's very appealing to, uh, nations around the world, even emerging nations. This event, uh, November 1st and 2nd, who is it for and who do you hope will attend? The program is for uh, the stakeholder community that are focused on space policy and the human dimension of space. So when you think about the entire space industry, it's maybe about four or $500 billion. And there's a, there's a small but growing segment of that that is involved in uh, getting people into and out of space. And, and it's really that segment of the, of the space community that, that we're most interested in. And so we, we are attracting companies, folks from NASA, folks from the, the administration, Department of Commerce, Department of Transportation, FAA, of course, and particularly the Capitol Hill, as well as the ac uh, academic community. So we're kind of bringing all these folks together for this uh, discussion. 
we're going to be fortunate to have uh, Ken Bowersox, who's who's associate administrator of NASA, and he oversees ISS, but he's also overseeing the transition from ISS to these commercial space station actors. Uh, you know, we'll also have uh, folks like John Shaw, who's a lieutenant general from from U.S. Space Force. He's retiring. Harbin, deputy commander of the U.S. Space Command. He's very forward-thinking in terms of the potential for uh, human activity, even uh, national security personnel in space. Jeff Mamber, who is uh, who's CEO of, of Voyager Space, uh, will join us, and he's a longtime space person formerly with NanoRacks. We're very fortunate to have a very full roster. I certainly encourage everyone to go to the Beyond Earth Symposium.org to take a full look at everything that is being offered at the conference. Yeah, the the agenda is really impressive. The the different um, discussion areas. I mean, there's not just the global perspective of space development, which again, that's such an important discussion, especially right now. But as you mentioned, um, ensuring the success of commercial space stations post ISS. It's another huge discussion happening right now. Thriving in space, making life sciences a priority building a cislunar ecosystem. And then one that really stood out to me was the financing pathways for large-scale space infrastructure. Another discussion that is just happening so much right now. And these seem like very actionable and practical discussions for people in the space industry right now. I'm so curious, uh, when, when you and your colleagues were sort of building your vision for this event, what were you hoping that people would sort of, after all said and done, kind of take with them as they go back to their, their jobs and, and you know, their day-to-day? What, what do you want them to, to take away from this conference? We are trying to not just report on what's happening in these different areas. We really want to advance the conversation around these particular areas that you that you mentioned. These are not just topic areas that we thought up for this symposium, but each one of the topic areas that you mentioned are core aspects of our policy agenda, if you will, and so. If you compare last year's conference, you'll see similar topics. What we're now doing is we're, we're taking it to the next level. And what's important about each of these topics is that they also equate to working groups within the Beyond Earth Institute that have been working throughout the year to develop specific policy recommendations that will be shared at the conference. And there'll be papers that will be issued. So as you come, a bonus for coming We'll have access to papers uh, specifically on commercial space stations, this lunar, the cislunar economy, life sciences from surviving to thriving in space, and of course uh, on the uh, pathways to financing large-scale infrastructure items. So, so we're really kind of proud. But by the time you get into this conversation with the people on these plant panels, they're already steeped with each other in terms of like working together. And then that provides an opportunity for the audience to engage with them. And then hopefully, I mean, this is our hope, that we would uh, you know, significantly advance the conversation sort of beyond just coming in and sort of reporting on, on maybe just some sort of a reporting um, opportunity. And so we feel it'll be much more um, engaging in that way. I want to certainly want to encourage uh, everyone to check this out. I mean, we are trying to create a environment where the notion that humankind is is expanding beyond this planet 
as a natural course of everything that we do in space, and that that's a good thing, and that that's something that we should not shy away from. So when you come to this conference, that will be that will be front and center. And if you are someone who sort of holds this vision yourself, this really is the conference to come to, in, in one that is does so in a very sober and uh, deliberative way. So we certainly hope that uh, folks will go to beyondearthsymposium.org, check it out, and, and join us. We'd love to see you on November 1st and 2nd. We'll be right back. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Welcome back. And the James Webb Space Telescope continues to amaze and confound us all with its discoveries. And the one we're sharing with you today is no exception on both fronts because a recent discovery is making scientists completely question our understanding of how planets are formed and even what we define as a planet. No, this story is not Pluto's revenge. Sorry, Alice. Instead, scientists using Webb have discovered jumbos, or Jupiter-mass binary objects. Like our pal Jupiter, just not quite big enough to be a star. Sorry, buddy. But unlike our red-spotted friend, jumbos do not orbit around a star. So imagine a Jupiter-sized gas giant planet-like object just hanging out in space. Definitely kind of weird. And now, imagine two of them hanging out together, loitering on the cosmic sidewalk corner because, believe it or not, jumbos are apparently formed in pairs. Now, this is my obligatory disclaimer that the research paper on jumbos has not yet been peer-reviewed. But if this research is validated it is going to completely break current understanding of how planets are formed. So, scientists have long figured that nebulas create stars, sure, in their gas and dust clouds, but spontaneously creating planet-sized objects too? Didn't see that one coming. And yes, it's not unheard of for planets to be ejected from a nebula, but for pairs of them to be co-yeeted? That is just weird, man. And for my favorite wrinkle on this fascinating story... These jumbos were observed in the Orion Nebula. So for those of us in the Northern Hemisphere, we're coming up on prime Orion viewing time in the night skies. The Orion Nebula is at the very bottom of the hanging sword hilt from Orion's belt. So if you're a fellow Northern Hemisphere-er, next time you see Orion, take a closer look and just think, there are some jumbo shenanigans happening over there. That's it for T-minus for October 5th, 2023. For additional resources from today's report, 
check out our show notes at space.n2k.com. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like T-Minus are part of the daily routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, from the Fortune 500 to many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. This episode was produced by Alice Carruth, mixing by Elliot Peltzman and Trey Hester, with original music and sound design by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive producer is Brandon Karp. Our chief intelligence officer is Eric Tillman. And I'm Maria Varmazis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. <laughs>